1: Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh-grade lip-sync contest for one of the songs on that album—the one that was like "You've Already Won Me Over." Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a like very all slow. The, of all the options, in spite of <laughs> me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to Twenty Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank
2: you.
0: There's plenty to celebrate in March, and. Ex- craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
2: the following ad is sponsored by pet's best insurance services
3: Every Bitcoin transaction has a tiny fee attached to it, and this, is, this exists in order to pay the miners for their work. Uh, but the main reward for miners is uh, what's called a block reward. So they get a certain amount of BTC for every block that they mine, for mm. that they mint. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the Coin Bureau podcast and this is blockchain part three.
4: Part three, yes. We're still in the same spot. My nosebleed has finally stopped Yeah, and I'm ready to get stuck in.
3: All right, Mike. All right. You're ready to pick up where we left off and carry on our our little odyssey into blockchain.
4: Yeah, let's do this.
3: Okay, let's go. We've talked about this holy grail, this idea of a system that allows us to transact without anyone in the middle. Um, so we better no talk- middleman, no middleman, exactly. Perfect. So the solution to this problem is blockchain. So I think it, I think we better now actually answer the question of what a blockchain actually is. That that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think we've beaten about the bush for long <laughs> enough. So okay. So here's here's a here's a definition to get us started off. So basically, a blockchain is a database of transactional data and it's stored on a network of separate computers. It's decentralized. Uh, and these computers are known as nodes and they can be scattered across any number of locations. and in fact, the more, the better um, because that makes it even more decentralized. and that has great advantages as we'll as we'll see shortly. So that's a that's a sort of working definition, this decentralized network of separate computers, and they're all storing uh, this database. They're all storing a copy of the database. Um, now, I use that term node, and this is going to come up a few times. So uh, a node on a blockchain is basically a computer uh, that's downloaded and is running the software for that particular blockchain. And you can think of each node, if it's helpful, as a sort of individual bookkeeper. So it has, it has a copy of the, of the book, of the ledger, yeah. if you like. Okay. Um, and this decentralized network and the transaction history it holds is often referred to as a distributed ledger. Uh, that's another term that I, I don't like that. Ter- I don't use that term too much. Um, but you do see it quite a lot uh, when, to- when people are talking about blockchains. Nerds. Nerds, when, yeah. It's, it's a popular term, a distributed ledger, a record of accounts spread out over many interlinked computers. So, here is how it works. Okay. Okay. So, just a quick note. We're obviously going to use Bitcoin as our example here, but it could be any cryptocurrency, depending on which blockchain is being used. Yeah. Bitcoin was the original, so we're going to stick with Bitcoin. So... Uh, Let's imagine a transaction taking place. And this time, rather than me sending money to you, as it's been the case in previous episodes, you're going to send some to me. You're going to send a Bitcoin to me. A whole Bitcoin? A whole Bitcoin, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. What have I done? (laughs) Yeah. Read your contract. It's, um, It's all in there. So, before we talk about that, we need to talk about one of these technical aspects of blockchain, which is public and private keys. Now, this is really important from a security standpoint. So one of the main ways in which blockchains are safe to use and ideally supported, uh, ideal for supporting cryptocurrencies is through the use of cryptography. And this is where we get the crypto part of it, Um, which is cryptography you can think of basically the science of secrecy. Bitcoin uses two types of cryptography. Um, The first is what's called public key infrastructure, PKI, another little acronym for you. And the other one is hashing, but we're going to get to hashing later. Hashing is… yeah, hashing gets really complex. But PKI, public key infrastructure, works You have works to say like- PKI as well. Yeah, okay. To, that makes us both sound clever. <laughs> PKI, public key infrastructure, works like this. So a, a user has two separate keys, which are basically just expressed as long strings of letters and numbers. That's how they look on, on the screen, on the page, as it were. So one is a public key which everyone is able to see. And this is basically the address of your Bitcoin wallet. Um, And you can give this out to people quite freely and they can send you Bitcoin. So you're looking to send a Bitcoin to me. First of all, you need my public key. Without that, you can't can't send me anything. The other key that you have, uh, that every user has, is a private key. Mm. Now this, as the name suggests, you cannot share with anyone. You have to keep this secret. Top top secret. Never ever share your private key with anyone. Um, because this is used to basically sign transactions. And it proves to the network that you control the address and the bitcoins within it. So in the example of our transaction where you're sending me a Bitcoin. Thanks very much, by the way. You're welcome. Um, I can receive that Bitcoin. I don't need to do anything. All I need to do uh, is is make sure that you have my address. Uh, and then you can send that bitcoin to me but i don't i don't need to do anything else than that but you need to sign the transaction with your private key in order to make sure that that bitcoin leaves your wallet um, so and that will then uh, that will then come to me because the network will know that that you have con- that the person you've, that you've has- signed it off you've okayed it exactly Exactly. Um, so, and a useful analogy, which isn't which isn't perfect, but it's good enough for our purposes, is you can think of the uh, the public key as being basically like your bank account because you'd give your bank account number. Yeah, at, yeah, you give your bank account number you out. Can, where,
4: when when you want someone to. You can send do you some money. dodgy stuff with people's bank
3: account numbers, though. I'm sure you can. Apparently, um, you set up direct debits. I, and stuff. I heard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want your bank account number to be Both generally known, no. um, which is why, yeah, which is why the analogy isn't isn't perfect. But you can think of it like that. Yeah, um, it works in the same way. You know, if I wanted to, if I wanted you to send me money um, by a bank transfer, I would have to give you my account number. And trust you not to misuse it, although by the look in your <laughs> the look in your eyes says I All probably shouldn't back. do that. <laughs> Let's stick to Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm safer I think I'm safer like that. Um, and you can also think of your so you can think of your private key as being similar to your pin. Again, this is something that you would not share with anyone. And obviously, when you want to send, when you want to withdraw money from your account, you need that PIN in order in order to do it. If you're if you're making a cash withdrawal, of you're um, typing it into a card terminal or whatever. Um, so, and the public key, uh, this one that you can share, is generated from the private one. And I'm only going to touch on how this is done because it, this gets really complicated. But it's using, in Bitcoin's case, uh, a method called elliptic curve digital signature algorithm. E-C-D-S-A. Uh, this is as deep as I'm going to dive into this element of cryptography because, I mean, as you can probably tell from the sound of that, it gets really complicated after that. Hmm. Um, <laughs> still with me? Yep. Uh, the important thing, and this, I think this is amazing, really, the important thing to, to, to take note of is that uh, E-C-D-S-A is almost impossible to reverse engineer. So if you have someone's public key, you can't, you can't reverse it. You can't, you can't run it back through the algorithm and guess mm. their private key from that. And it's very, very clever and high level how this is done. Um, but obviously, yeah, if, that was a, if, if, it was, if, if we were able to run it the other way, it would be useless. Um, but this system is developed so that, uh, yeah, it's impossible to guess what someone's private key would be, even though you have your public key, which is why it's obviously safe for your public key to be distributed in order for people to send you money send you bitcoin yeah um so uh, the takeout here is that only you can send btc out of your wallet if you have the private key and there are instances where people have lost their private keys which means they lose access to their bitcoin which is obviously a bit of a disaster yeah. yeah and you'll notice there that i referred to btc now this is something that we'll touch on again in a minute or so but btc is basically the native coin Of the Bitcoin network there is um, there is a distinction that we need to draw here because sometimes the word Bitcoin sort of gets uh, thrown around and people refer to Bitcoin Bitcoin cash
4: as well and
3: yeah that's something that's something else entirely that's what's that's what's known as a as a hard fork of Bitcoin yeah hard forks are are an aspect of blockchain that I think we'll probably touch on in future but I don't think we'll touch on this in either of these two episodes it's not um, yeah yeah it's a bit it's it's a bit next level okay happy with yeah PKI Um, So, let's get back to that transaction then. The record, a record for the transaction is created by the Bitcoin network and it's broadcast to all the nodes. And then every node on the network then checks the transaction and validates it. Okay? Still with me? Yeah. Periodically, a predefined number of validated transactions are grouped together into a block. Uh, And these blocks need to be linked together to form a... Chain. Exactly, exactly. And that's where we get the term from, obviously. Now, we'll look later on at how these blocks are linked together because it gets pretty complex. Um, Just for the time being, though, in order for the linking of blocks to be done, the network has to agree that all transactions are valid and the ledger can be updated. And this is known as consensus. Here's another technical term. And again, we're going to come back to this, uh, maybe in this episode or, or possibly the next one. So the blocks need to be linked together. Uh, consensus needs to be reached on the network. Consensus is basically agreement as the as the term suggests, and it's reached when a majority of nodes i e fifty one percent or more, agree that everything is as it should be, and the blockchain can be updated with the latest batch of transactions. okay And because all the blocks are linked together in sequence, the information contained, on that blockchain is immutable. And the reason for this is because it's it's very, very difficult and in, almost impossible really to go back and change it. Because if you changed any information further back along the blockchain, doing so would affect all the subsequent information uh, and the network nodes would notice that something was amiss. And this is a key part of, of why blockchains are so secure, in that it's, it's, as I say, almost impossible to go back and, and fiddle with the information. Um, now, this could be done. This, has, this is much easier to do with a centralized database, where the data is all, all just sitting there. But because blockchain is sequential in that way, um, re- any, any sort of retrospective hanky-panky, yeah, for want of a better <laughs> term, is, is pretty difficult. Okay, so what I've just given you there is is a really simplified overview of what a blockchain is, and we're going to dig deeper into the whole process. Do, yeah. do you do you have a kind of men, good mental picture of, of what we're dealing with here? No, it,
4: it all makes sense. It all makes sense. It's not particularly riveting. <laughs> I want to see I want to see some green candles. That's all I'm about.
3: You want to see green? I, green I can, candles. I can respect that.
4: I can um, respect that. But it is good to know. How yeah. those green candles are made and what, what's, what's keeping them up.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, perhaps as we, as we dig deeper into it, you know, may, maybe some of these technical aspects of it will, will excite you a bit more. But what we should have now, two of blockchain's I think most important qualities should be apparent by now. So this is the fact that it's decentralized. Yep. It's spread across all these nodes. So you can't just attack one place and take control or, or interfere with the data. And it's immutable. Basically, it can't be, it can't be altered fudged. retrospectively. Fudged. Did you say fudged? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting term. Yeah, I like that. Um, and there's no single point of failure for the network. And the information it carries is the truth. And, and actually, blockchains have been referred to in, 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 in the past. Uh, some people refer to it as a truth machine. Um, so if someone were to dispute a transaction, let's say that you wanted to – you were going to claim that you'd never sent me this Bitcoin hang on a sec that didn't happen then we could go back check the record and we'd have our answer but yeah there are there are blockchain explorers and there are ways there are plenty of companies that can that can do this as well Um, and actually one of the interesting things is that bitcoin is is commonly perceived as being untraceable and anonymous no Uh, and it's not no in fact bitcoin is a lot easier to track than cash so if anyone ever says to you oh uh, Bitcoin cryptocurrency is 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 used by money launderers and criminals you can come back to them and say well actually if you were looking to launder money um, you'd be much better off using cash because Bitcoin is is a lot easier to track yeah it takes a bit of it can take a bit of doing and obviously experienced money launderers will be will have many many processes but because it's all sat there on the blockchain and easily viewable it's Actually, really difficult to to conceal.
4: Yeah, it's, and it's all there in zeros and ones, black and white.
3: Yeah. So before we before we move on, before we get a little more technical, shall we take a quick break? Yeah, quick. Let's have a quick, have a quick
0: <laughs> BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other.
3: I've talked about nodes a few times now. Yeah. Uh, and these are an essential part of the blockchain um, because, as I say, they, keep, they hold this record of... They hold the transaction history. They're vital to the running and decentralization of the blockchain. Um, and let's... Bef- I want to talk about how they're kept honest, basically, how they're incentivized to, to do their work. Um, but before we do that, let's just take a moment to think about just how amazing this system is. Uh, because, firstly, no one entity is in charge this is a this is a truly decentralized truly decentralized yeah no no one person uh, no one group of people really has any uh, has any control over the network it's and because it's decentralized with no single point of failure there's no one person that you can lean on if you were if you were going to try and manipulate it it creates a record that can't possibly be altered its censorship resistant as we as we say and it solves this double spend problem that we've talked about uh, and so all these things it's it all these things are enormous enormous um all these things are enormous kind of obstacles to to have overcome uh, and w- the amazing thing about bitcoin is how cleverly it does it, it ticks a lot of boxes yeah yeah it's um it, it, it it's overcome all these different challenges uh, which Individually, I think are, are pretty difficult to, to tackle themselves, but as a whole, is yeah, it's a huge achievement that Satoshi has 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 pulled off. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. But here is a question: So let's say someone wanted to attack the network for for some reason, maybe maybe financial gain, or they just they just wanted to see just Bitcoin destroyed. Just yeah, exactly, um, what prevents them from running multiple nodes and gaining control that way? Hmm. because setting up a node is really, really easy. Uh, I'm going to talk about this a bit more in part two, but the hardware you need to run a node is is tiny. It costs almost nothing, and you don't need to expend much in the way of electricity or even time on running a node. So you could argue that if someone wanted to gain a, a lot of influence over the network, they could just set up multiple nodes. It would take a little bit of doing, but if they were in coordination with a bunch of other bad guys, then it would be. But it's a lot. There's a lot of nodes, are not there? There are a lot of nodes, yeah. Um, because, and it's certainly in the case of Bitcoin. It's this is something that that comes up a lot when people are talking when we're talking about other cryptocurrencies and decentralization because uh, a lot of cryptos make these claims that they have a lot of nodes and they're decentralized and actually when you dig down into them they're not but bitcoin genuinely has hundreds of thousands uh, it's thought of nodes across the world so actually in theory even 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 if there wasn't a, a system in place to to keep nodes honest, in theory, it would still be pretty difficult. But it would have been a lot easier in Bitcoin's early days when it was still when it was growing relatively slowly, when mm. there were only a handful. Maybe, I mean, it started off obviously with 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 one and grew from there. Um, so yeah, this would have been more relevant in in Bitcoin's early days. But it's still it's still something to consider. So. If someone were to control a majority of nodes on the network, then they could theoretically have their fraudulent transactions confirmed and this would corrupt the whole blockchain and make it useless. So there would be one way to get around this and that would be to have basically some central authority keeping an eye on all the nodes and authorizing each one. But this would of course destroy the whole decentralized nature of it because again you're relying on one entity. Um, even if it's even if that one entity only has a limited role in in approving nodes or, or saying who or who can't be a node that's still centralized that's still a lot of power concentrated in one place mm. which is which is against everything that Bitcoin is, is stands for so um, what Satoshi was able to do was to devise a system of basically incentives and punishments carrot and stick if you like that would keep the nodes honest and make the actual act of trying to corrupt the network pointless and this was this was again the big challenge in to avoid having this centralized authority so how does this work how does this carrot and stick system work a certain type of node creates the blocks, and these are batches of validated transactions and adds them to the chain. Now, these nodes are known as miners. Okay? This is a term I'm sure you've heard before. Yep. Miners, as in, yeah, miners, people who mine.
4: Not children. Not children. Okay. Yeah.
3: Um, so we'll come back to mining later on because that's a, whole, that's a whole field of discussion in itself. But miners are basically rewarded uh, for doing this work, for validating transactions and adding them to the chain. And uh, Bitcoin miners are rewarded for maintaining the Bitcoin blockchain with BTC, basically. Um, and there are two ways in which they're rewarded. They get what's known, uh, they get a transaction fees. So every Bitcoin transaction has a tiny fee attached to it. And this, is, this exists in order to pay the miners for their work. Uh, but the main reward for miners is uh, what's called a block reward. So they get a certain amount of BTC for every block that they mine, for mm. that they mint. And we'll come back to how how it is they do this. Uh, and again, just flag up just to flag up the the difference between uh, BTC, as I talked about, BTC being the native coin uh, on the Bitcoin network. So um, these Bitcoin rewards, these BTC rewards, are distributed through a kind of lottery like system, um, and this reward is this this lottery system basically is the incentive for doing the work. But what stops them from trying to earn more rewards by running multiple nodes, which could then give them control of the network? You see? Again, it's this idea yeah. of, uh, yeah. that someone, even if they weren't looking to bring down the network, they could still Influence gain a it. lot of power for themselves by, by, running lot, by, by yeah running lots of miners, having control of a lot of mining nodes. So all miners have to expend computing power in order to earn the chance to win this Bitcoin lottery. And this system is known as proof of work. Now, this is a really important concept. Um, So proof of work was something, it wasn't devised by Satoshi himself. Proof of work actually existed as a concept uh, before Satoshi came along with Bitcoin. And it was originally developed uh, as a system uh, for stopping spam email. And you'll see, you'll see why in a minute. But what Satoshi managed to do was basically pull together a number of features from previous experiments at creating a peer-to-peer digital cash and devise a system that finally worked. At some point, I think we'll have to, go, we'll have to do an episode where we talk about some of these previous incarnations, um, maybe when we dig into the history of Bitcoin a bit more. Um, because Bitcoin isn't the first attempt to create a peer-to-peer digital cash. There are others that have that have come close. Uh, some have been some have been more successful than others. But Satoshi certainly wasn't the first person to try and solve this problem, to try and to try and invent this 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 thing. So proof of work plays a really critical role in keeping the network secure. But we'll come back to that. So proof of work eats a lot of computing power, and this obviously has to be paid for through electricity costs. So what this means is that if if one miner wanted to gain control of the network, they would have to commit so much computing power and pay for it through their electricity bills, obviously, uh, in order that they could do that. And you can see that that's already a barrier. Yeah, a disincentive, if you like. Um, this, and the expense of this is such that it will almost certainly cancel out any financial gain that the miner could could reasonably expect to get from corrupting the network. And even if they were able to force through their fraudulent transactions, the rest of the network would notice what they were trying to do. Also, I mean, it's, that's the basis of,
4: of why Bitcoin is worth money.
3: Yeah. In so like, the,
4: if, you, if you are able to corrupt it, but you're paid with it?
3: Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. If, um, if, you, yeah, if you corrupted the network, if you're a Bitcoin miner and you wanted to corrupt the network... Then that would make the Bitcoin, the that BTC you earn, that you hold, worthless. yeah, people's confidence in the network would crumble, and it would be worthless. So again, yeah, this is this is part of that carrot and stick system that Satoshi devised. The, the miners are, the miners have an interest in keeping the keeping network it secure and fair. Yeah, because it, the the whole reason it above that board. exactly, exactly, um, as soon as as soon as the network was was found to be corrupted, as soon as it, it any a large group of miners managed to gain control, no one would want to use Bitcoin. So all the Bitcoin, all the BTC that they'd accumulated, would plummet in value. So yeah, they're 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 kept honest um, economically, if you like. That's a really good point. Yeah. So um, people would yeah people would lose confidence in it. the the Bitcoin Bitcoin's price would tank. Uh, the miners' gains would be wiped out. Um, and I should say, actually, as well, that we talk about that we talk about this idea of, of of people wanting to corrupt the network for financial gain. It's also worth pointing out that not all incentives to take down Bitcoin are necessarily financial. Yeah. financial. Um, a government, China, China, people, or have, America, or, or America, <laughs> any yeah. government, a really. crypto, yeah, a, a government that is hostile to crypto, and China is definitely the entity that springs to mind here. Uh, People have talked about this a lot because a lot of Bitcoin miners until fairly recently were concentrated in China. And there was a lot of worry that the Chinese government... In camps? (laughs) Yes, possibly. Um, (laughs) but, (laughs) But there is, yeah, the Chinese government is obviously one of the more, how to put this, coercive governments out there. Authoritarian. Authoritarian, yeah. Um, And it's quite possible that the the, the Chinese government would want to do something like that. If it saw Bitcoin as enough of a threat, then it would theoretically be able to get the resources together, certainly to lean on the miners that it could could feasibly lean on. And because so many of those miners were in China, this was a genuine concern. Since China basically banned mining in 2021, in sort of mid-2021, uh, miners have miners have left China. Um, and I think as as we speak, there are virtually I think the, all the hash power has gone from from China. So there's virtually no uh, Bitcoin mining taking place in mainland China anymore, which is which is a good thing for the network, really, because, yeah, it's I mean, re- it,
4: it, it was I, rem- I remember it was kind of, okay, look, that that might be a problem. People were like worried about it. But yeah. because, you know, it, you're seen it's seen as a crackdown. But actually, it's a bit more liberating for the for the cause.
3: exactly yeah because the miners are incentivized pretty heavily incentivized uh, to move their operations elsewhere so a lot of miners from china uh, a lot of them went to the united states mm. a lot of them also went to sort of neighboring countries i think places like kazakhstan um saw a lot of influx of miners and it it's not an cheap easy power. thing sorry is it cheap power there or yeah yeah, so there are places, and this was another concern about uh, about mining in China was that a lot of it was done using coal, and obviously that has huge environmental
4: issues. Whereas well, it Kazakhstan is just pure natural gas. Yeah, I,
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth pointing out that as well as governments, um, perhaps a rival crypto project would yeah. be motivated to take down Bitcoin, Squidcoin. Um, Squidcoin, <laughs> squid yeah, the the mighty squid. Again, this would be. They'd have the motivation, um, but the means would again be really difficult. It's mm. just it, it's just so costly committing all this computing power, and we're going to find out why exactly it uses all this computing power later on. But yeah, in order to do it, it would be it would cost so much that you'd have to be really highly motivated, and either I, I think really only a government would be would have the would have the resources to do that. So this is another of Bitcoin's strengths, and people talk about governments talk about banning Bitcoin all the time. And as anyone, as any Bitcoiner will tell you, you can't ban Bitcoin. Um, you can make it. You can make it harder for people to to use it. But because it is spread, uh, spread across the world, spread across all these different nodes, there's no, way of, there's no way of going after the network itself. The only way to do it, I guess, would be, to, would be to limit people's access to it. But even China struggles to do this. And China has the great firewall of China. China has some of the strictest and most rigidly controlled Internet in the whole world. And even, even the Chinese government can't stop people accessing and using the Bitcoin network. Mm um and so you it's tempting to think that if China can't do it really no one else is is going to come close yeah. so yeah another that's another thing to bear in mind if you ever hear about bitcoin being banned uh it can't be it can be made illegal but actually banning it actually successfully stopping people from having any access to it whatsoever is is difficult and or impossible mm. So we should have a very simple overview of how a blockchain like Bitcoins works. A decentralized network of nodes and miners that are incentivized to behave in an honest fashion. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't gain anything from being part of the network. Um, and if any miner was to step out of line, the penalties for doing so would not be worth the effort they'd expended. So the network, as I've shown, is, is designed to keep itself honest. You've got this balance of incentives and punishment, carrot and stick.
4: Guy, I need to stop you right there. I need to go to have a piss. Fair enough. <laughs> we also have some sponsors to, okay. to,
3: to <laughs> I mean, you could have just said we need to take a break. <laughs> but whatever works for you, man. Okay. We'll be right back.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
3: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Mike, was that a successful toilet visit? Yeah. Good. You were gone quite a while. Yeah. But you, you look... I washed my court. hands, unlike some of us, Guy. How dare you. Two more things I want to talk about today in relation to blockchain. Sure. The first is what is called the blockchain trilemma. Okay. This, now this sounds cool. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's start off. There's, there's a payoff to Bitcoin's proof-of-work blockchain, okay? Um, because it's, it's decentralized, as we've talked about, is also super secure, but it isn't all that fast.
4: Yeah, like we we're saying, ten minutes for a transaction to sort of come through. Roughly. Yeah,
3: so a ten minute, ten minute block time, which is um, kind of
4: like yeah. So my problem is if I'm buying something, I don't want to have to hang around for ten minutes while. Exactly.
3: Yeah, this has been something that's been a problem with Bitcoin for a while now. In that, if yeah, it, it, it's not ideally suited for for small purchasing. Because, yeah, because transactions take a while to come through. And the reason for this is that the Bitcoin blockchain, this proof-of-work blockchain, is really slow. It can only process seven, around seven transactions per second, okay, which might sound quite a lot. But compare this with Visa, which can handle – do you want to have a guess at how many transactions per second the Visa network can handle at at sort of top capacity? Like nine? 65,000. You were, sl- <laughs> were slightly—you know—in
4: the high lower game. <laughs> I was just going slightly higher.
3: <laughs> just you just weren't going to go too far out there. Didn't want to go crazy. Yeah. Okay. No. Well. Yeah. You were you were ever so slightly off. Sixty-five thousand TPS. We we say TPS for short, transactions per second, um, and that's when Visa's at maximum capacity. Um, now Christmas time, Black Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Black Friday, um, the Visa network can handle a lot of traffic. Um, the Bitcoin network can only handle a tiny fraction of that, which is obviously not ideal when you want to make instant payments. Now, going back to that episode where we talked about um, what happens when you make a card payment and all this sort of stuff, there's a heck of a lot of stages. Do you remember mm. we talked about how many stages, how many different third parties are involved in the transaction and all that sort of stuff um, from the moment you, you boop your card until the moment the merchant gets paid? But it's, it's, it's seconds, really. It's a really it's a really quick process, and obviously Visa has invested heavily in its infrastructure, and it's also got a centralized network. And centralized networks are are much better at processing the uh, processing a lot of transactions per second. Um, but the Bitcoin network now, it, it, you can kind of understand it, I guess, given ev- everything that we've talked about, everything that's going on, all this computing power that's been thrown at it, uh, the fact that the block time is is kept at ten minutes by the um, by the by the difficulty setting Mm. on the network and and also there's only so much information that you can contain within a bitcoin block it only actually holds one megabyte of information now when we come to talk about bitcoin specifically we're going to talk about there was a huge argument a few years ago books have been written about this called the block size wars and some within the bitcoin community wanted to increase the amount of information that you could that you could store in a block which would mean that Bitcoin, the network, would be able to trend, um, would be able to handle more transactions per second, but other people on the, other people in the Bitcoin community were totally against this. And one of the reasons is that if you increase the size of the block, it becomes a lot lot harder to store the whole blockchain history. Because you increase the amount of data mm. that the blockchain uh, is dealing with. And at the moment, pretty much any, any computer, even one of these tiny sort of Raspberry Pis that we were talking about that you can run a node on, it's, it's, only, um, it's only a few gigs of data. The Bitcoin blockchain, whereas there are other blockchains out there that have much faster uh, transactions per second that can handle a lot more, but their data is huge. Solana is a good example, and we'll obviously we'll talk about Solana in in due course. But um, yeah, it's super fast, but in order to it, it can't actually store all its data. It has to use another cryptocurrency project in order to store its data. It, it, it produces a vast amount. So, long story short, it would would have been possible with the agreement of the Bitcoin community to increase the block size. But it was decided against doing this because that... Was, Was that just on some sort of vote? Yeah, it, it it would have come down to it would have come down to a vote in the end, um, voting by voting by nodes and miners. Um, and there's a core group of about five people who are able to enact changes on the Bitcoin network, but they can only do it with the approval of a majority of the community. And it was decided. Uh, I mean, this got re- these arguments got really heated, got really bitter, um, and it was a philosophical thing as much as anything else. But basically, the because- was it close. Um I don't quite recall. No, I think it was I think it was for a time, but I, I think it was fairly it was fairly clear that um that the nice. majority wanted to keep it as it was. Um but that said it did um that there were enough people who disagreed with it and we actually had um a, a bit that's where Bitcoin cash came from. That that resulted in a hard fork of the network. Now this is getting into stuff I wasn't planning to talk about today. Um But the network split, and the people who wanted a larger block size um, started a new project called Bitcoin Cash. And the two communities do not get on. Um, But yeah, so we we wandered away from it slightly. But the reason why the Bitcoin network is so slow is because it is decentralized and because there can only be uh, a small amount, one megabyte of information contained within each block, which results in the fact that it can only process seven transactions a second. So, Yeah, and this whole decentralization um, is part of it. It means that any node can, because because the block size has been kept small, it means that pretty much any node can store it, which is great for decentralization. It's not so good for speed. All make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so this brings us to what is called the blockchain trilemma. Now, this is something that was first identified by Vitalik Buterin, who is the founder of Ethereum. And as we'll discover in future episodes, he was motivated to, uh, to design and build Ethereum because of deficiencies that he saw within Bitcoin. He, he saw what Bitcoin's limitations were. But what he said when he talked about the blockchain trilemma, he argues that blockchains have to compromise in one of three key areas in order to, um, in order to function. Now, these areas are scalability, security and decentralization. Okay, now scalability, let's tackle that one. Scalability is basically the ability to maintain the same speed and performance regardless of the number of users. It's, it's the network's ability to grow and yet still function, still perform without slowing down. Mm. Now, um, yeah, this is kind of related to, to speed. As such, so we'll come back to that. Security is how safe it is from being corrupted by a majority of miners. You know, uh, uh, this fifty-one percent attack that we that we talked about. This idea of of a majority being able to to take over the network, and I think we're we're pretty clear on decentralisation. Mm. Okay. So, what Vitalik is talking about with the blockchain trilemma is that he says you can't fulfill all three of these criteria. There has to be a compromise somewhere. Uh, Think of it as a three legged stool where one leg uh, necessarily has to be shorter, which obviously results in it being wonky. So, either a blockchain can be fast and secure, but not decentralized, or it can be fast and decentralized, but not as secure, or it can be secure and decentralized but not as fast. And obviously with that last one, Bitcoin is the best example. It's super secure. It's it's really decentralized, but as we've seen, seven transactions per second, it's not all that fast. Now, lots of crypto projects claim to have solved the blockchain trilemma. Um, Whenever a new crypto project comes out, quite often they will make this claim. But when you drill down, you usually find compromises somewhere. Um, And normally that is to do with decentralization. The project will not be will not have quite not as many party. nodes or miners and yeah. exactly exactly. Um, now we've talked about yeah we've talked about scalability this this idea of the network growing whilst handling more traffic and still maintaining that TPS rate. Um, and any blockchain project will want to scale successfully. It'll want to grow. It'll want to add more users and process their transactions with minimal delays. And unfortunately, the more centralized the network is, the easier this can be. Um, and again go back to the example of visa you know visa is super centralized you know visa the, the visa the company controls all the servers um, it has these huge stores of data but that's much more efficient because they they can concentrate that computing power in one place um, whereas with a decentralized network you having all these computers are having to do this work they're all having to reach consensus it's necessarily a sort of more drawn-out process so yeah, while, it, it also, while centralization, it can help with scalability, um, it also threatens to compromise security because then, you, as I say, the data is all in one place. Hackers have a bigger target at which to aim at um, and a potential entry point into the network. So a fast and scalable blockchain is all well and good, but if it's vulnerable to attack, then, then users will Avoid it like the plague, you know. So, so this is the trilemma. You can't have all three. There has to be a compromise. Um, we'll and we'll encounter the blockchain trilemma a lot more in the future. But it's it's an important thing to to think about at this stage. So, yeah, by necessarily, there's there still has to be a compromise. And in Bitcoin's in Bitcoin's um, instance, it's this idea. It's it's just not that fast. Now, people are developing uh, solutions for this. There's something called the Lightning Network which a lot of work has been done on recently. Uh, And this is aimed at making Bitcoin faster, meaning that you can make these small payments very easily and very quickly. Um, And that involves a process basically handling these transactions off the main Bitcoin blockchain and then sort of sorting them all out later on. Uh, but again, this gets yeah, this gets pretty complicated. But yeah, this is this is the big drawback that the Bitcoin network has at the moment. It's it's it hasn't been it it can't handle that many transactions. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now we're on to the final part of today's episode. I want to talk very very briefly about proof of stake. Stakes. Proof of stake. That's stake as in a, not a, not the thing you eat. Um. Yeah, stake as in something put yeah, down. Yeah, the stakes are high. The stakes are high, exactly. So we talked about proof of work, didn't we? Yeah. And we know all about proof of work. Um, and this is how the Bitcoin network reaches consensus. But there are obviously drawbacks. It uses a lot of power. It's expensive, environmental concerns. As we've also seen, it's kind of it's kind of heavy. It's kind of cumbersome. Plunky. Yeah, and that's and that's why the Bitcoin has this slow TPS. Um, and another thing to think about is also these high barriers to entry. Um not anyone can become a Bitcoin miner these days. in the early days, yes, when you could mine it with your with your laptop, laptop CPU, great. But as we've seen, um, that's that quickly became impossible. Obviously, there was uh, this chap using GPUs and then we got onto Asics and all this sort of stuff. so, There's these high barriers to entry. Not many people can afford the equipment needed and the electricity bills. And this has a knock-on effect onto decentralization because it means that hash power becomes concentrated in a small uh, pool of miners, if you like. Even though they may be spread across the globe, there are still fewer of them because it's harder to become a miner. Mm. You need to to put a lot of money down in order to... And then hope you get it back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: Probability you will,
3: but... Yeah, the upfront costs would be very, very high. Though, I mean, there are still people going into it, but I mean, for individuals especially, it's pretty much impossible. You need, you'd need a, you'd need a heck of a lot of financial firepower just to get started, which is which is obviously not ideal. So, as a result, uh, as a result of these drawbacks, many crypto blockchains use a different system to achieve consensus, Uh, and there are several out there, There there, there there are quite a few and they get quite complex, but the most popular alternative that we have at the moment is called proof of stake. And very simply, proof of stake involves putting down crypto, staking, to have a chance of being chosen to produce a block and earn the block reward. So let's go back to our lottery example. Basically, you're kind of you're buying a lottery ticket. Rather than committing computing power to earn this lottery ticket, you're basically buying it. You're putting down money. Um, and miners and uh, miners on a proof of stake blockchain are known as validators. Uh, they are then chosen at random. To create a block, so there's none of this none of this expensive proof of work going on, none of this computing power being being expended. Uh, there, it's just decided randomly. Um, but although uh, that you're, if you're a validator, your chances of being chosen do increase with the more that you stake. So. Yeah, again, it's a bit like a lottery system. Um, now, validators are kept honest through a process known as slashing. So if they're found to be misbehaving, then they can have some or all of their stake wiped out or, or slashed, as we say. So there are, there are carrot and stick How would they misbehave? To, uh, again, sort of trying to, to, to take over the network, trying to maybe collude with other um, validators to to approve transactions in their favor, you know, to, to corrupt the blockchain. Um yeah there are I think there are some pretty clever ways of doing it. but again, there are these there are these preventative measures in place. Um, so again uh, a balance. yeah, exactly. and an economic incentive not to misbehave. Um now this obviously has the advantage of being much more energy efficient than proof of work, and it's also much, much faster. Um, however, it does raise concerns around centralization, this blockchain trilemma again, um because those able to stake more, are much more likely to win. Mm. Now, now you and I could theoretically join a proof of stake network, but uh, again, a bit like with a bit like with mining on a proof of work network, you you again, as these networks get more popular, you need a larger and larger stake. Um, and there are ways to, there are ways that you can um, you can participate in a proof of stake blockchain if you're not necessarily wealthy. Um, you can delegate. Uh, your stake. You can you can add money, you can delegate money t- uh, to a validator and receive a cut of their block rewards. And this is becoming I- increasingly popular. But still, um, although proof of stake has a lot of advantages, it still tends to concentrate power in on the network. On in groups. Yeah, in in especially towards the wealthy and a lot of people, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community especially have a real problem with this. And And I think it, it's a valid point that they raise. Because you shouldn't be able to, to buy, your way, uh, buy your way to power on a network. Um, and they would argue that there's nothing stopping, like uh, some of these proof-of-stake blockchains, there's nothing stopping big corporations uh, g- swooping in and buying up validators and having an inordinate amount of power. Um, and there's a lot more to proof-of-stake than this because also there's questions of governance. As you have more power on the network, you also get more say in how it's run. Um, which, again, is not great for decentralization if there are, if there are rich mm. people s- swanning in. Um, so it's also, yeah, So the net, a proof-of-stake network is theoretically more corruptible as well. And it would be easier for a government, say, to, to print money and, va- and buy up validator nodes. Um, but you could say it's not quite so easy for them to get their hands on a bunch of ASICs and start a mining operation for instance. So, yeah, these concerns around centralization, this blockchain trilemma is is much discussed when it comes to proof of stake as well. Mm. And um, to give you an example, Ethereum is currently in the middle. We're, we're in late uh, 2021 now. Ethereum has for a while now been transitioning from a proof of work blockchain like Bitcoins to a proof of stake. And that's scheduled to happen sometime we hope in early twenty twenty two. This will make it much more efficient, it'll make it much faster, and much more scalable. Um but there are still concerns around centralization. So let's wrap things up, shall we? Let's wrap up everything that we've we've talked about today and Please. about blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so blockchain has solved this problem of how humans can exchange value over distance without the need for a third party. As I said, it's it's an incredible achievement, that, because it's so, so difficult to do. The tech involved, as we've seen, is really advanced. We've only just scratched the surface in these two episodes. Uh, talk, we've talked about hashing and we've talked about Merkle trees and targets and nonces. And yeah, it's 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 complex. It's it's really difficult to get your head around. So I hope for I hope for everyone listening that that's simplified it a bit. Um, and simplified is a key word there. I think we I think we can agree. There's a, there's a lot more to this, but I hope that gives you a kind of working knowledge. Um, we'll come back to blockchain at some point um, because not only are there other things to discuss about the workings of blockchain um, that I've already hinted at, but also it has uses beyond just cryptocurrency. Um, it's a technology that a lot of people are very excited about. Mm. And uh, depending on who you believe, some people say it's it could potentially change the world. Other people are a bit more circumspect about that. Um, but it really is uh, an amazing innovation. And we're going to be hearing a lot more about it in the future, both inside and outside of crypto. And do you want to know what we're going to talk about next time? Yeah. We're going to talk about Bitcoin. Yay! Yay! So obviously, we've already mentioned Bitcoin quite a lot. Um, but there's a heck of a lot more to talk about. Uh, I'll try not to cover too much of the same ground, but obviously there are things that, you know to do with Bitcoin mining and things like that that we'll, that we'll hint at, but um, this, this episode should have given, given everyone a, a, a kind of entry into that. Um, but yeah, I think probably the Bitcoin episode, we might even, we might even do three episodes of Bitcoin because <sighs> there's a lot to talk the about. The trilemma. <laughs> the Bitcoin trilemma. We got pretty technical there, didn't we? I think we did okay you know yeah
4: I think with some some terrible puns and some good analogies <laughs> we've managed to to break a quite complex sort of uh, explanation down into some bite-sized t- I look I understand it so if I understand it I'm sure the majority of the listeners here
3: I certainly didn't see any smoke coming out of your ears No, my um, assics my brain assics was working yeah I didn't see I didn't see your eyes glaze over too much no I mean, you have got those dark glasses on yes. with, with open eyes painted on them. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take it off with my mustache as well. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. I can't wait. Um, thank you for today, Mikey. Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio.
1: visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. There's plenty to celebrate in March and expect.
0: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And any time is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free...